0: If you'd like to turn in your Bibles, uh, we'll be in Ephesians 6 this morning, uh, in the Black Pew Bibles, that's on page 979. So we've been following, we've been working through this uh, letter to the church in Ephesus uh, that talks in, in a big-picture way about God's new society. That's how um, one commentator uh, actually titled his work on this On this book, God's new society, the kingdom of God. We've been learning about how God has taken people who were dead in their sins and made them alive in Christ. And not just alive, but adopted as sons and daughters. But not just adopted individually, but made together in this miraculous way into this new body, this new society, this new way of relating to one another. Called the church. Later on, we uh, looked at how this is a society that is marked not by the same behaviors and the same way of living, the same walk as the old society, but it's built upon the command to be imitators of God in all that we do, all that we think, and all that we say. But, This is not a society that is being created out of nothing. This new society is being built. It's being created at the cost of the old society. If you'll remember, mankind is in open rebellion. We have committed treason against the creator of heaven and earth. In Adam, we looked at God and we said, you created me. And you created that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I know better than you do how these things are supposed to work. In Adam, we looked at God and we said, there are more important things in this world than you. And so we live in rebellion against the king of the universe. And that is what our rebellion, our society, this old society is what the Bible terms the world. And so this world, this old society, is contesting the creation of this new society. If you remember when the United States declared their independence from England, that was in what? July 4th, 1776, right? When did the Revolutionary War end? 17... 82, something like that. Anyway, the point is it went on for years after the Declaration of Independence, right? The United States declared their independence and England contested that independence. And so we, as the church, are in the midst of being formed into this new society, the kingdom of God, but that creation is being contested By the forces of evil and of darkness, we are assured of ultimate victory by our hope in the second coming. We still live in the tension between the already and the not yet. We're fighting a fight that has been won, but is still ongoing. And so what Paul is going to talk about here at the very end of this letter is how it is that we are to fight. What does it look like for us to be fighting in that ongoing battle? So let's read here. This is Ephesians 6, uh, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul opens this passage with this command, be strong in the Lord. So it's... a. Command that also has a, 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 um, a promise that's implied with it. And that promise is that the strength that we are to be strong in, the strength that we are to stand in, is not our strength. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan preacher, and he said that, um, that we contribute nothing to our salvation, except for the sin that made it necessary. And this is a thread that's woven through this whole book of Ephesians and also this whole passage that we're going to look at today. Ephesians 2.8, it says that by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god so all of these things that we are going to look at these are not things that we bring to the table these are not things that we develop these are things that we have been given these the strength that we stand in is not our own strength it is god's strength the strength of his might so why are we told to be strong in the lord there's a word that happens that comes up three or four times there, and that is to stand, so that we might be able to stand, to stand firm, to withstand, to resist. Um, one of the one of the best pictures that I think that we can um, that we can take, uh, and I'm, I'm not a football guy, so be gentle with me if I get this wrong. But in in football, you've got the offensive line, right? They square up with the defensive line, and their job is to stand firm. To give the quarterback time to pass or the runner time to run. To stand firm. To keep everything right where it is. They plant their feet, and they stand firm. They will not be moved. And so that's the idea that we are being called to. To stand firm. But to stand against who? Who? For we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our primary concern is not to be in opposition to those whom the devil has deceived, Our our primary concern, rather, is to be in opposition to his work. And we should be praying in all of that that the eyes of those who have been deceived would be opened. So, this has some very practical implications for us, right? It's simple enough to look at a problem like addiction and say, it's easy. All we got to do is we got to limit access to drugs from a legislative standpoint, from a law enforcement standpoint, and everything will be solved, right? Well, if we struggled against flesh and blood, that might be the case. But that's not what we're told. We're told that, we're, that we don't struggle against flesh and blood. And so an addict in that case will simply find other outlets for their addiction, Other drugs, sex, food. It's a spiritual hunger that is seeking to find its satisfaction in something that this world offers. And they will never find it. There can be no satisfaction found in anything other than in Christ alone. We see it in the political arena, right? But the enemy of the church is not those who disagree with us. But those who have been deceiving them and those who might disagree with us are simply bystanders who are caught in the crossfire of this spiritual battle that is taking place. And so our responsibility is to be praying for those people who have been deceived because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. So what are the tools that we have been given in order to stand in this way. He says to take up the whole armor of God. So I've got a picture here of uh, of a uh, Roman legionary. Now this is an actual picture of... No, it's not. (laughs) This is a a reenactor. So this is is a symbol that not only would uh, the people in the church in Ephesus have been pretty familiar with, but... um, And, and I don't have the reference here, but it tells us that Paul spent years chained wrist to wrist with a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. And so Paul is drawing from, you know, the items that was, um, that were immediately surrounding him to be able to write up this, this illustration. And so there are uh, different parts of this, this suit of armor that he, um, that he uses as an example. And the first one that he gives is the, the belt of truth and belt kind of undersells it for us a little bit. Um, I I think that it's the King James that translates it as, as girdle. Um, so it would have been, um, almost like a work belt with suspenders that, that he's talking about here. And there's a, um, in almost all of these, there's a doubled meaning. Um, so the, the first way that we can interpret this belt of truth is we need to be, as the basis for everything else that happens in our lives, we need to be um, clothing ourselves in God's objective truth. So it says in John 8, 31, um, Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And he goes on to say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So God has an objective truth that exists outside of us. And that is the truth that we need to be using as the basis for everything that we live, every way that we live our lives, every choice that we make, every... um, Everything that we clothe ourselves in, and so the secondary meaning there is um, we need to be clothing ourselves with truth. our lives need to become more and more conformed to god's truth. so when we clothe ourselves in truth we are we are saying that we are. Attempting to make God's truth our own truth. Um, And that's what's commanded in Ephesians 4.25. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So we are to put on God's truth. And in doing so, we will become Our lives, our hearts, will become more and more conformed to God's truth. Anybody wear a wedding ring that's maybe a little bit too small? Like, say, if you've put on a little bit of weight since the first time you put on that wedding ring. No, that's just me. Okay. Um, So my wedding ring, I wear it, right? And if I were able to take it off, which I can't, you would see what, where the wedding ring was. You would see an indent around my finger, right? So I have worn this wedding ring so much that the shape of the ring has dictated the shape that, that my finger has taken. I don't know how long it would take for it to go back to normal, but um, that's the idea. As we put on God's truth, Who we are becomes so shaped by it that gradually the shape of our truth becomes the shape of God's truth. The shape of our lives begins to take on the shape of God's truth. And it's the same way with the the breastplate of righteousness. So righteousness is our right standing before God. Our ability to say we are good enough. Now, we've got a double meaning here as well, because we as Christians don't have, we don't count on our own righteousness, right? Whose righteousness do we depend on? It says in Philippians 3.9, um, Paul writes, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So it's not his own righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we do not depend on our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness, which is given to us through the power of our faith. And as we put that righteousness on, as we depend on Christ's righteousness, as with the belt of truth, as with the wedding ring, As we depend on his righteousness, that righteousness begins to shape who we are. It begins to work itself out in us and through us. So we have the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness and then the shoes of the gospel. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So readiness here, the preparation. And there's two senses here. There's preparation that is given by the gospel of peace and a preparation to give the gospel of peace. So if we have fully understood the gospel, there isn't anything that should happen to us that we are not ready for. The the understanding of the gospel, the readiness of the gospel prepares us. It gives us a firm footing to be able to withstand the storms of this life. The shoes that, uh, that Paul was describing here, they would have been sandals that laced up quite a ways, but they had nails driven down through the soles, and so they were spiked. And when you planted your feet in the ground wearing these shoes, there was no moving you. And so if we have shod ourselves, if we have put on the shoes of the gospel, we can face sickness and we can face death. We can face famine and persecution and wars and rumors of wars. But none of these things have the ability to affect the one thing that really matters. Our relationship to a holy God. So we have preparation being given by the shoes of the gospel. So we are more prepared to face the challenges of this life as we wear the shoes of the gospel. But there is also a sense in which, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness to give the gospel of peace. So the one thing that we stand on, the one thing that gives us traction is this. This is Romans 14 7 and 8 for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself for if we live we live to the Lord and if we die we die to the Lord so whether we live or whether we die we are the Lord's so the gospel this gospel understands understanding gives us the freedom the readiness to proclaim the gospel to all and to proclaim it without fear Because it is God who changes hearts, not our eloquence or our ability to persuade people. We can proclaim it without fear because we know that we belong wholly and fully and completely to God. And that whatever short-term negative things might happen because of our attempt to share the gospel with another... we still have that which matters philippians 3:8 i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain christ we have the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness the shoes which are the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And then we have the shield of faith. So before we get to that, what is faith? Hebrews 11, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And so faith is not just an acknowledgement of the facts, but an acknowledgement of them, an approval of them, and a trust in them, And we get our faith, it says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So you hear the word of God, you acknowledge that it is truth, you approve of it, and then you place your trust in it. You hold it out as your assurance for all of the things that you hope for, and your conviction of all of the things that are not seen. And so this is an important chain, right? Faith comes from hearing. You hear of God, you acknowledge its truth, you approve of it, and you place your trust in it. And this is laid out in in Romans 10, uh, Romans 10, 14, where it says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him Of whom they have not heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Those of you who sit closer to the front might have seen, I tend to wear colorful socks. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's my Sunday morning reminder to preach the gospel, to preach the good news unashamedly. And so this shield of faith, it says here, is able to extinguish the flaming darts. And these can take various forms. Um, just by way of transparency, I'll give you one example from my own life. Um, very often, I'll get partway through a... Um, partway through a sermon and I'll realize that I don't think I'm making a whole awful lot of sense. Uh, and that's very discouraging for me because I, I want to be able to make the word of God clear. And so that's one of those flaming darts that comes into my life pretty regularly on a Sunday morning. Um, but If the shield of my faith is able to extinguish extinguish that flaming dart, what does that look like? So he said that faith comes from hearing. So you need to hear the word of God, acknowledge its truth, that you approve of it and place your trust in it. So what does the word of God say about me in that situation? It says in Isaiah 55, God says to Isaiah, my word So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So I hear the word of God and I acknowledge that. God says that his word will not return void. Did I preach the word? Okay. It will not return void. And that is what I want. I want God's Word to work in my life and in your life and so I hear the word that it shall not return void. I acknowledge that it is true I said that is what I want and then I place my trust in that and it takes time and it takes practice, and sometimes that is more effective than others. But that is one of those fiery darts. must be the King James that it's fiery barbs. (laughs) That's one of those fiery darts that I encounter in my life, that that shield of faith serves to extinguish. So we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The shield of faith. We can, we're finally getting to the pieces we can see here. That shield of faith. And then we come to the helmet of salvation. So where is it that our salvation comes from? Ephesians 2. Verses four through nine, because it's a great chunk. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. For by grace you have your salvation through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It says in Hebrews 5.9 that he, that is Christ, became the source of of eternal salvation to all who obey him so our salvation just like our truth and our righteousness and our gospel does not come from inside of ourselves but it comes as a gift given to us by god that is received by faith the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So it says in Hebrews um, 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this is the sort of sword here that Paul is envisioning here that two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit. So the word of God pierces us. It serves to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this is the only offensive weapon, this is the only offensive weapon that's listed here, right? Because as Christians, the word of God is the only offensive weapon that we need. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So we have prayer. We have communication. We have coordination with our commanding officer because we are trying, as it says in Galatians 5.25, to stay in step with the spirit. And so this last item here, prayer, is an absolutely vital piece of this picture that Paul is trying to paint here. Because an individual Roman legionary would have been pretty fierce, pretty imposing, a little scary to face down, right? But they were also slow. They had limited mobility. They were vulnerable. He's vulnerable on his sides and on his back. But they did not fight alone, but they fought together as a group. They lived and they trained and they fought together as one unit. And so the weapons that they were given, the armor that they were given were designed specifically for that purpose, for fighting in close formation alongside other similarly equipped soldiers. I think I've got another picture here. Like so. Again, an actual picture. And so um, they were trained and they were trained with great discipline to fight alongside together as one unit. Their ultimate strength, their ultimate uh, effectiveness was in their unity, not in their individuality. They fought as one body. And and, um, when they were aligned in that one body, I've got another couple of pictures here, you can see that the weaknesses that any one individual soldier had, the weaknesses at their sides and at their back, are protected by those around them. And even more so in another formation here, it's a little dark, but you can see They are all protected, even from the top, by their ability to work together as one unit. And so these tools that we have been given as the church are helpful when they are deployed individually, but their true strength and their true effectiveness are seen only when they are deployed and used in a group, the church. So the Roman soldier was imposing individually, especially if that soldier was highly skilled. But the reality is not every soldier is highly skilled. Not every soldier is strong. But the discipline and the equipment and the training of the Roman legionary allowed those forces to function and succeed even and to allow even the most timid and the most weak soldier to be able to contribute to the success of the unit. See, the weak are strengthened and they are reinforced by the strong coming alongside them. But the strong were still protected and guarded by the weak. You don't see who's weak and who's strong. They protect one another. And so they find strength. They find effectiveness, not by individual achievement, but strength and effectiveness through unity. So this is what it says in Ephesians 4, right? Paul says that he he hopes that they would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, so that when each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, is taking on the job that it was designed for, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So as Christians, we are not called to a solitary faith. And ultimately, we are not equipped to be lone sojourners through this world, but we are designed to live and to train and to fight our spiritual battles in communion, in unity with one another. And then Paul ends with a command to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So our participation in this new society, our faith is not a passive, sleepy role. You don't simply coast through a Christian life. But there's supposed to be constant activity. And specifically, Paul says here, to be praying for all of the saints. And then he goes on to ask the church to pray specifically for him. And what is it that he asks them to pray for? For? It's not for his freedom. It's not for his safety. It's not for his comfort. But he prays for boldness in proclaiming the gospel. Now, if you remember correctly, it was his boldness in proclaiming the gospel that got him tossed in jail to begin with, right? And so he's not praying for a more subtle way to be able to proclaim it so that he doesn't keep getting tossed in jail. But he's saying Despite the cost, despite the price that I am paying, my first, my last, and my only concern is that the gospel advances. And so you have this body of soldiers, and their roles were not built around pride or individual performance or individual safety even, but they were built around advancing their goals. Winning the battle. And that is what Paul is concerned with here. And so, what good is equipment? What good is training if you're asleep at your post? Instead, keep alert with all perseverance. So, to revisit how we started off this morning. Ephesians is a book about God has ta- how God has taken people who were dead in their sins and has made them alive in Christ. And not just alive, but adopted as sons and daughters. And not just adopted individually, but made together into this new body called the church. But the church exists not just for itself, but it exists as an expeditionary force. That is there to proclaim a message the message that the kingdom of God is at hand and we are its ambassadors the king is coming and he will conquer he will overcome all who stand in opposition to him he will overcome all who are still in rebellion against him but for those who will repent for those who will turn away from their self-centered rebellion and submit themselves to his mercy and to his grace, he will extend to them not just citizenship in that kingdom, but he will adopt them into his family. So if you have not submitted yourself to his leadership, if you've been attempting to travel through life girded by your own truth, protected only by your faith in yourself, either at some point in the past you will have found these things to be inadequate or there is a point in the future where you will discover their inadequacy. But I stand here today to tell you that I serve a king who has given to me a truth that I could not comprehend on my own, a righteousness that far surpasses anything that I could achieve on my own, a readiness that exceeds my station in life, a faith beyond what I could hope for and a sword that is capable of all of those things that my rough powers of persuasion cannot ever accomplish. So while these things might look like they were mine, it might look like I have it all together, I'm not ashamed to admit that all of these gifts, all of these things are but gifts from a merciful God to an undeserving and an unworthy servant. So if you seek the truth, if you seek these things, they are freely given to all who ask. Repent, turn away from your sin, and dedicate your life to seeking and proclaiming and magnifying the glory of God. Now, if you are a Christian, but you have always kind of considered yourself a loner, and to some extent... We all consider ourselves to be loners because other people are messy. Other people are complicated. They rub us in ways that we don't particularly like. So we try and keep everybody. I mean, it's all right to come this close, but don't come any closer than that. Right? But the call of this passage is to stand with your brothers and sisters in faith, to stand together and not to stand apart, to stand as one unified body against the assaults of the enemy. You were not to live your Christian faith alone as a mercenary, but as a member of a larger body, as a part of a family, as a part of the Legion of Faith. So we need to lock our shields and stand together as one united body. Not as a bulwark against society, because that is flesh and blood, right? And we don't stand together against those who disagree or differ from us, because that is flesh and blood as well. But we stand together against the forces of evil that have been arrayed against us, to distract us, to discourage us, to cause us to fall. So be strong in the Lord. That we together might be able to stand against the forces of evil. And that we together might be able to proclaim the gospel that saved us. Let's pray. Father, we are weak. We are fallible. We are liars. We are unrighteous. But God, you have given us so much more than we could ever imagine. Father, you have given us your strength. You have given us your truth. You have given us your righteousness. You have given us your salvation father something we could never earn something we could never buy something we could never hope to have except that you would give it to us father and father you gave us this church You gave us these brothers and sisters to stand alongside us so that our faith would protect those who are weak so that we might be able to encourage and support and uphold and uplift that we together could withstand the enemy. Father, there is no way that we could have ever designed or have hoped to have come up with this, Father. But we are so very grateful for what you have given us in your word and in this picture and in this church, Father. Help us to stand. Give us your strength to stand firm in all things.